Did you know that more than 75% of the roads in New Mexico are unpaved? Now contrast that with the rest of the lower 48, where 94% of all roads are improved and paved. So, a lot of back roads and wilderness to explore in Nuevo Mexico. Another thing you probably didn't know about New Mexico is that it is codified in the state's constitution that idiots cannot vote. Now, that definition has changed a lot over the last hundred years. Today, we call someone an idiot who's just kind of thick-skulled or dim-witted or even ignorant. Well, what if idiots couldn't vote today? And better yet, what if they couldn't run for office? This is episode number two. Welcome to the Bruise Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Thank you, Jessica, and hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bruise Traveler. Or if you're just discovering us for the first time, well, thanks for finding us here in the podcasting universe. I'm Alan Tatman, and I'll be your host. I'm also the chief cat herder of Team Brews Traveler, and this week we're heading down to the great American Southwest to one of my favorite cities ever, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and visit Santa Fe Brewing Company. We'll have an interview with their brewmaster, Bert Boyce, and their head of marketing, Jared Babinsack. Now, if you're not familiar with Santa Fe Brewing Company, you're going to want to hear this interview. These guys were great. This is one of the best interviews I have ever done uh, in my life. Very candid, a lot of fun. We had a great time uh, while we were doing this. We talked about different styles of beer. We talked about the industry and where does a regional brewery like Santa Fe, where do they fit in to this ever maturing and growing craft beer market? And we're also going to have uh, our buddy Tony Rehagen. He's going to give us a report from the road. And this week we're also talking about the business of craft beer. So let's get this show on the road. And now we head on down the road with the Bruce Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint and who will we meet? Let's find out. Santa Fe, New Mexico, folks. And yes, New Mexico is the land of enchantment. If I could live anywhere else in this world, and I've been to a lot of places, I don't think I could find any better place than the Rio Grande Valley, including Santa Fe and Taos. Uh, that would be right there at the top of the list. A bit further south in Rio Dosa would be very nice too. And at Rio Dosa, when winter came, you could just head down the road about an hour and you're in Las Cruces. I, I love New Mexico. What a great, great state. It's just beautiful. The people are fantastic. And I discovered New Mexico back when I lived in Texas and I went there a lot. And I was very curious as to whether my impressions might have changed after more than two decades, but absolutely not. Still beautiful, still great people, and the food. Oh my gosh. It, New Mexican cuisine puts most Tex-Mex to absolute shame. Always go with the salsa verde. Always the salsa verde. Uh, chili rellanos, enchiladas, and of course, alongside it, cerveza fria, por favor. I'm going back sooner 
rather than later. I tell, I promise you it won't be another 20 years. It'll be more like 20 weeks. I promise you that. And uh, if you want to see what I'm talking about, I have some photos from the trip posted on our Facebook page, and that's over at facebook.com slash Podcast. If you've never been to New Mexico, you need to get there, and especially Santa Fe. It's a great city. And at 7,199 feet above sea level, it's more than 1,000 feet higher than Cheyenne, Wyoming, and almost 2,000 feet higher than Denver, making Santa Fe the highest state capital in the country. Now, in the summer, it never gets too hot. Like here today in Jefferson City, it was over 90 degrees with humidity somewhere around 500%. But in Santa Fe, it was a comfortable 73. That was the high today, and the humidity was 36%. Wait, one second. Marilee! Pack a bag, we're going to Santa Fe. What? Tonight the temperatures are going to drop down into the 50s, so I mean, it would be beautiful up there. Clear skies, stars shine like you can't believe it. Build a campfire, six-pack of Happy Camper IPA out under the desert night skies. Ah. Oh, I'm going back. Got to go back soon. And you know, the winters are not horrible there either. Yes, they do get some snow from time to time, but again, it's a very dry atmosphere, so it's not like that bone-chilling, gray, wet crap that we get here from November until the end of February, sometimes into March. While in New Mexico, December and January, the average temps are in the mid-40s down to the upper teens, and they only get about... Two and a half days of precipitation on average during the winter months. Yeah, I could envision living in Santa Fe. One second. Marilee, why aren't we living in Santa Fe, New Mexico? What? Folks, <clears throat> after a while, 90% of a good marriage is just yelling, what, from another room. So, where was I? Um, oh, Santa Fe. Archaeological evidence of the first residents of the Rio Grande Valley date as far back as 16,000 years when hunter-gatherer Paleo-Indians established scattered encampments across the region. But the first settlements of any permanency developed with the cultivation of maize in the region around 1500 BCE. But the first settlements of any permanency coincided with the cultivation of maize in the area around 1500 BCE. The Tanoan people are the first identifiable cultural group in the area. These ancestors of today's Pueblo tribes of the American Southwest and the Kiowa tribe of Oklahoma, around 900 AD, these Tanoan peoples built a cluster of houses around the area, which is now the plaza in Santa Fe, making it one of the oldest continually inhabited settlements in North America. The first Europeans sent to the region arrived in the late 16th century when Don Juan Pedro Añate established the frontier settlement of Santa Fe de Nuevo México, just north of the present city, in 1598. Nine years later, New Mexico's second Spanish governor, Don Pedro de Peralta, founded a settlement at the foot of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, christening it La Via Real de la Santa Fe de Francisco de Assisi, the royal town of the holy faith 
of St. Francis of Assisi. Three years later, in 1610, he declared it to be the capital city of New Mexico, making Santa Fe the oldest state capital in the United States. In the 1670s, tensions between the indigenous Pueblo tribes and the Spanish came to a head when the Inquisition and the governor prohibited the practice of the Pueblo's native religion, also prohibited the use of hallucinogenic drugs like peyote in religious ceremonies, and when the Pueblos didn't stop, the Spanish arrested 47 of the native shamans and charged them with sorcery. Three of them were hanged, one committed suicide, and the remaining shamans were publicly flogged and then thrown into jail. The leaders of the Pueblo tribe gathered a large force of warriors and fell upon Santa Fe, demanding that the prisoners be released. Now, only having a small contingent of fighting men on hand, the governor acquiesced to the demands. Once the shamans were released, they rallied all of the Pueblo tribes in the region, as well as some Navajo and Apaches, and together they drove the Spanish out of Santa Fe and south to El Paso in the year 1680. But of course, the Spanish came back with cannons and cavalry in 1692, and they reconquered the area, capturing seven Pueblo leaders, executing them, and sending their family members to Mexico, where they were forced into slavery in the silver mines. After the War of Mexican Independence in 1810, the Americans started to take notice of Santa Fe. St. Louis fur traders were then allowed into New Mexico to trade for beaver pelts and horses for the first time, which had been prohibited and under the penalty of imprisonment by the Spanish government. The newly independent Mexicans, especially those in the upper Rio Grande Valley, welcomed the Americans and especially their hard currency, which was a rare thing in Nuevo Mexico at the time. The Santa Fe Trail, running from Franklin, Missouri, all the way to Santa Fe, became the first trade settlement route west of the Mississippi River, two decades before the Oregon Trail, and it made the trading companies of St. Louis extremely rich. After Texas seceded from Mexico in 1836, the Texans attempted to take Santa Fe, but the expedition sent to do so was easily defeated by the Mexicans and the Texans were captured, taken to Mexico City, and held prisoner for two years before being released. In 1846, the United States declared war against the Republic of Mexico, and one of the first successful military expeditions of that war was to take Santa Fe, led by General Stephen Kearney, effectively taking New Mexico out of the war altogether. New Mexico became a U.S. territory with the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the war in 1848. In 1851, Jean-Baptiste LeMay became bishop over most of the land that the United States had acquired at the end of the war, except for California. Between 1869 and 1886, LeMay oversaw the construction of the Cathedral Basilica of St. Francis of Assisi, a Romanesque revival-style building that still stands guard over the central plaza of the city, and it serves as the mother church of the Archdiocese of Santa Fe. During the U.S. Civil War, Santa Fe was occupied for a short time by Confederate forces led by General Henry Sibley, 
But because of a disruption of logistical supply lines coming out of Texas, the Confederates were forced to evacuate the city after only a few days in late March and early April of 1862. During the booming years of the railroad construction over the late 1800s, Santa Fe was envisioned as a key stop, so much so that one railroad was named after it, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. But engineers decided to bypass the city, taking an easier route 20 miles to the south. The railroad, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, never even passed through Santa Fe. A spur branch was added in 1880, running from Albuquerque up to Santa Fe. But the engineer's decision to divert the railroad to the south led to Albuquerque becoming the largest commercial center and city in the New Mexico Territory. The city of Santa Fe experienced gradual economic decline as the old Santa Fe Trail was abandoned for the railroad line in the late 1800s and early 20th century. City leaders began to encourage academics and the arts as part of the town's appeal. In 1907, the School of American Archaeology was founded, one of the first colleges to emphasize that discipline west of the Mississippi River. As a gesture of gratitude, the city gave the college the former Palace of the Governors, a substantial and prominent building on the city's plaza for use by the school as their administration building. In 1912, New Mexico became the 47th state of the United States of America. And in that same year, Santa Fe did something very unique and forward-thinking for the time. The city fathers realized that the trend toward economic decline, which had begun 20 years earlier, with the Commerce Center of the state moving to Albuquerque, they decided to go in another direction, art and culture. They first passed an ordinance that said all buildings had to be built in the Spanish Pueblo Revival architecture style. And this move is what gives Santa Fe its unique look among all other cities. In the 1950s, the ordinance was revised New and rebuilt buildings, especially those in designated historic districts, were required to exhibit a Spanish territorial or Pueblo style of architecture, with flat roofs and other features suggestive of the area's traditional adobe construction. However, many contemporary houses in the city are built with lumber, concrete blocks, and other common building materials, but have had stucco surfaces applied, sometimes referred to as faux doby, but it does reflect the historical style. Even McDonald's has to adhere to these guidelines, as well as the usual national franchises and chains that you'd find in every city, including Walmart, Best Buy, and Starbucks. The guidelines, of course, are stricter as you get closer to the historic city center, but the overall look of the city is pretty unique. Another thing that the city fathers encouraged beginning in the early 20th century was a cultivation of the arts. Today, Santa Fe is home to nationally renowned museums such as the Georgia O'Keeffe Art Museum, the New Mexico Museum of Art, which has one of the largest collections of American Southwest style, and the Museum of Contemporary Native Art, the Museum of International Folk Art, the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture, and the Museum of Spanish Colonial Art. And on any day that you walk along the old plaza in the center of town, 
you will see a lot of artists working on various works in various mediums. Famous wordsmiths who have either lived or wrote various works in Santa Fe include British author and journalist D.H. Lawrence, Cormac McCarthy, Michael Charles Tobias, Kate Braverman, English author Douglas Adams, detective novelist Tony Hillerman, nature writer Mary Austin, Dan Flores, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Paul Horgan, George R.R. Martin, and Walker Percy, just to name a few. But this show's about beer, and regarding the brewing of beer in New Mexico, well, while the regional natives of the area have been brewing a beer-like beverage from corn since they began cultivating the crop, what we would recognize as beer wasn't brewed in New Mexico until the mid-19th century. Prior to that, vineyards and winemaking had been the major practice of Spanish settlers in the territory, going back to the 17th century. By the 1880s, New Mexico Territory was the fifth largest wine-producing region in the United States. The earliest mention of a brewery in New Mexico was in 1855, when it was written in one of the local newspapers that a flash flood of the Rio Grande had destroyed a nameless Santa Fe brewery. In the first decade of the 20th century, three breweries were built in New Mexico, one in Bland, one in Albuquerque, and another in Las Vegas. No, not Nevada, Las Vegas, New Mexico. Las Vegas, New Mexico, by the way, was where Doc Holliday practiced dentistry before he killed a man and had to leave for Tombstone, Arizona. Interesting little factoid, but back to the beer. The last brewery to be built in New Mexico before Prohibition was the Gruber Brewing Company's operations in Las Vegas, which opened in 1909, only to go out of business a little more than a decade later when the Volstead Act was passed. Another brewery would not open in New Mexico until 1988, when the Santa Fe Brewing Company produced the first commercially brewed beer in the state in 68 years. Santa Fe Pale Ale was released. With the success of Pale Ale, Brown Ale and Porter followed. Three years later, a dachshund named Petey massacred a bunch of chickens at the brewery, and such was born Chicken Killer Barley Wine. In 1997, the current owner, Brian Locke, along with three other fellows, formed a partnership and took over the operation. In 2003, Locke bought his partners out, and he's been overseeing the day-to-day operations for the past 15 years. He's really a hands-on guy, as you will hear about in the interview to come. In 2010, the brewery began canning. It was then that the first ice-cold Happy Camper IPA rolled down the line and into the hand of the owner, Brian Locke, who said, You can shotgun these, which he did. In 2015, the brewery brought distribution to nine different states, added an underground barrel cave for sour aging, broke ground on an expansion, and hired Burt Boyce, one of our interviewees, as the new brewmaster to carry on the tradition of making high-quality craft beers. And that more or less brings you up to date on the history of New Mexico's original craft brewery. So let's sit down with Bert and Jarrett in the tap room at Santa Fe Brewing Company. 
Now it's time for the interview of the week, and let's meet our guest. Whether they be a craft brewer or brewing advocate, they're sure to have a story you'll want to hear. And now, here's Alan and his guest. Hey, everybody. We're in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the land of enchantment. And I'm here at Santa Fe Brewing Company, one of the greatest brewers in the Southwest. And uh, I'm here with Bert Boyce, the head brewer here at the at the brewery, and Jarrett Babinsack. Did I say it close enough, Jarrett? Good enough. All right. Sorry. Cheers, Cheers. guys. Cheers. Yeah, you bet. Uh, and Jarrett's in charge of sales and marketing, and he's been to Jefferson City. Thanks, guys, for having us come into your uh, into the brewery today. This is uh, fantastic. I've been drinking your beer for a number of years, and it's finally nice to come out and see the the place at the source. <laughs> yeah, yeah, glad to have I tell you. you. And Java Stout for. We're having uh, beer for breakfast, so this is one of the best ones there is. So, oh, it's so good. It's, I think it's even better here. You guys, I'll start with you, Bert. How did you get into craft brewing? I started buying good beer when I was about 17, but it was pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started home brewing when I was 17 or 18. And uh, with the blessing of my family, I come from a long line of drinkers and partiers and um, boys that's an that's an irish name isn't very it much, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um so i you know i, I got hooked and um I, I loved cooking and brewing was just a natural extension of of that passion sure uh got my first job at a brewery when i was 19 washing kegs and what brewery was that it's called Sudwork. where's in, in davis california okay summers are from california i went to school studied brewing at davis and uh been washing kegs and making beer ever since you, that was like your first career. Yeah, you, right. you've always had a career in this. Yes. Jared, what about your background? Yeah, so I started in the beer industry the very day that I turned 21. Not to say that I didn't experiment prior to that, obviously, but I actually started on on the macro side. So I worked for Miller Brewing Company mm-hmm. uh, while I was in college as an intern, and then as a part time employee, and then worked for them for almost a decade. Had a great opportunity to join a craft brewery, Big Sky Brewing Company out of Missoula, Montana. Sure. Um, and just really loved the change of pace of the culture, having something more interesting to drink right. on a regular basis. And so, I mean, we're still running a business, still take what we do very seriously, but we're having a ton of fun doing it. Would you both say that you don't have a, a background in macro side of things? But kind of does. He was at Sam Adams. For oh, you were at Sam Adams. I was at Sam Adams for about eight years prior oh, to coming here. Oh, okay. Okay. So let me add, with the smaller independent. We're both cra- kind of refugees, right? <laughs> with the smaller independent craft breweries, did you say that there's more, more fun, more energy in it than, than than the uh, the big guys? I think, you know, I look at each of us as an individual company and culture, um, and uh, I think that smaller companies, you have a greater opportunity to shape that culture in in the way that you want it. So I I wouldn't say that Sam Adams wasn't fun, but here, you know, we're we're intrinsically involved with the culture, and we can make it as fun and as serious as we want. Okay, so when we pulled up this morning, there's a guy out here, he's trimming the weeds, the, the bushes. And it's the owner, Brian. <laughs> right, it's the owner, man. He's like he's out doing the gardening. I thought this is this is this is a great place. This is a really great place. What what's what do you see as the big differences between the two? You know, as Bert said, I mean, it, it's really what you make of it and the company you work for. You know, I know some of the larger brewers; they've still made that you know the culture and the employee and the person a priority. Right. Um, that's something that you know Alana's back there shooting camera. She's our 
general manager and director of HR and all things culture related and in Burton I play a role in that also and I mean that's why we come every day I mean that's what we like about working here is the people and we have fun and we enjoy each other and it's a cool place to work um, and like Bert said we can control it great you know because we're still small enough we're nimble enough we can have an impact on that from a day-to-day basis which I find that really enjoyable knowing that you're making a difference and you can see it in the energy level of the employees and how engaged they are it's fun to be able to to work in that kind of environment every day we looked at the market last year um, we saw that there was an opportunity in the IPA category because we felt like at least in New Mexico and the Southwest in particular people were brewing West Coast IPAs and they're burning right. but they weren't brewing what you know what Bert felt anyway was what the consumer really wanted out of an IPA which was something that's super hoppy and aromatic and really juicy and fruity but doesn't have all of that sticky resiny kind of bitter aftertaste right. and so we launched 7k ipa last year doing exactly what you're talking about seeing an opportunity being small and nimble enough to act on it and yeah. that's now become our flagship beer we're selling more of that beer than we do anything else in our portfolio which is it's really cool to be able to sit down come up with an idea see a market need and then within six months have that brand on the market and then not even a full year later be able to see the fruits of that labor that's something we would never be able to enact in a large brewery no. or a different atmosphere maybe even a different or you know a different a different industry but being able to do that and see that come to fruition is pretty damn cool that is that that, that is the i'm gonna have to have a little bit of that before i get out of here but of course uh, <laughs> how many states are you distributing to right now we're in eight you're in eight we're states, in eight states. well i guess i thought well we're in missouri we're so far away i thought well you guys were in more yeah so we're in eight states seven meaningfully i say that because utah is still such a, a junk show when it comes to liquor laws yeah. and being able to scale that for a brewery that doesn't make anything under four percent so what what states are you in so we're in everything that touches new mexico uh-huh. plus kansas and missouri so you guys nice. are as far east as we come nice I mean, last year we retracted out of two states so that we would have the capacity to be able to fill the demand in the states that we're already in. Um, so far, year to date, we're already delivering on a very aggressive forecast by upwards of 25%. So wow. right now we are busting at the seams trying to keep up with demand in the states that we're already servicing. So we're looking at a brew house project for probably Q1 of 2019, which would, will add a considerable amount of additional capacity. Will that be here on the campus? It will. So okay. we've already got a space cleared out. We're going to talk more about that. but. We're in a position right now where adding additional states just isn't feasible for right. us. And, and, and in all honesty, when we sat back and looked at it a couple of years ago, we were kind of plotting out our short long-term strategy. It's becoming increasingly difficult for regional brewers to leave their home market to try to become right. a relevant regional brewer. I mean, it's a pipe dream almost to become that next national brewer at this point because there's, I mean, there's 6,200 and some odd right. breweries or whatever right now. I mean, you include the, the breweries in plan. We're closer to 10,000 right now. Right. Before last year, it was like 52. Now, this year, they say there's 61 in operational. And like you said, there's another 4,000 in planning. Yeah. You know, so if you make a quality product, you're, you're going to find your market. Maybe. I mean, it's almost that's almost become being quality has almost become a commodity at this point, or at least that's, I mean, that's, that's, the, cost of that's the cost of entry. And maybe yeah. not even you don't even have to have that. I mean, we've seen this huge proliferation of 
local, like uber local businesses, not just in the craft brewing scene, but there's so many local breweries that are not even turning out good product at this point oh, yeah. that are still relevant in selling beer because they're local. So even making great beer or good beer is not even the cost of entry at this point in a lot of ways. So it's it's tough. And when you're competing for, you know, you're, you're seeing a lot more breweries open and you're also seeing the number of outlets in which we can sell shrink because everything's becoming change driven. So while there's more breweries entering the market, the amount of shelf space and the number of call points is doing this. So we have less outlets that we can actually sell to. So it becomes imperative to play that game with the big box retailers right. if we even want to find ourselves on those on those you know shelf sets. Right. So it's 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 a more dynamic marketplace right now, and a, definitely a much more competitive marketplace and a more expensive marketplace to do business in. How many barrels are you producing annually right now? We did a little over 24,000 last year. We'll do, well, we're <laughs> just looking at, we don't know how many we're going to sell this year, but probably around 34,000. So we'll go from 24,000 last year to probably somewhere in the 34,000 neighborhood by the end of calendar year 2018. That's Brian. He's the owner. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> he's working here. Yeah. Okay. So 24,000 right now, when you add the new brew house, what do you anticipate you, you be able to do annually? Um, I mean, capacity is a really nudgy subject. Sure. Um, but, you know, I, I think we well, you pretty quickly grow you, up to, uh, in this footprint, I think we could probably grow into, say, 70-ish. Nice. Without, so almost triple your volume. Yeah. That's, that's really, it's got to be exciting for you guys. I mean, it's exciting and scary at yeah. the same time. Well, absolutely you, both. If, you, if you're not scared to death right now about making these big decisions, then you're not reading the papers and you don't know what's going on. Well, I mean, you've seen what's happened with, you know, like Green Flash with Smutty Nose. There's a lot of big breweries that made large bets on adding capacity and sinking money into infrastructure. And if you don't keep your brand healthy and you don't stay relevant and you're not equipped to play that game at the ch- you know in the chain outlets, it's going to be hard to make those P&I payments on the loan that it took to, to bring that capital in to make those investments. So we honestly had been kicking that can down the road as far as we could to where it was demand driving those investments and not a wing and a prayer and a hope, right? right? So, yeah, to Bird's Pit, it's really exciting that we're growing as fast as we are and that our brand's healthy and people are, are digging the beers that we're putting out, but there's it's not without anxiety. I, I would say, Alan, usually, depending on the audience, sometimes my, uh, my take on this whole long, crazy trip is, um, you know, sometimes craft brewing is just the coolest thing on the planet, and I can't imagine doing anything else, and all we do is play football and drink and have fun and experiment and create that's like one side of it and the other side is that it's a cutthroat business you need to be professional you need to be buttoned up you need to understand the the outcomes or like possible outcomes of every decision you make and um, you need to be ready to go out there and win at retail and you need to be super efficient in your brewery and you need to have well-trained well taken care of staff who likes coming to work every day and who feels that passion and love and support like it's crazy um and it's it's and you know what it is it's just it's a mature market at this point like you, it's no longer the brew and they will come days it's you, right. you have you have to be serious about it and you have to be ready to win this growth has got to sometime plateau don't you think 
It has, <laughs> I think. Well, I mean, it has for the industry, but certainly. So I think that's why we're in a, in a unique spot right now. The industry is plateaued, and we're growing at fifty percent, and we're the oldest and biggest in the state. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, that is, that is, well, I think that that means that you're doing something right. I mean, you say you're you got fifty percent per annum growth. Right now, Q- that's what was through Q1. We're up fifty percent versus last, last year. year. Right, that the total market for craft beer in the beer industry is just like under eight percent by volume. Yeah, but dollar wise, it's almost a quarter. We're at about twelve. I think you're right. I think we're at twelve percent. Twelve percent by volume. Twenty three percent. That sounds yeah. right. The twelve point one percent. Okay. Is what was sticking right. in my yeah. head. Yeah. So <laughs> let's talk about beer. All right, we've enough about the business. Let's, let's, yeah. uh, let's do that. Let's talk about beer. Uh, Bert, can I uh, trouble you for? <laughs> what's the uh, what's the? Uh, I would be honored. What's the uh, ABV on the seven K? Seven percent. Seven percent. Seven percent. Seventy IBUs. Oh, okay. Brewed at seven thousand feet. It's a lot of sevens. Ah, there you go. There's the name. There's yeah, the name. Seven K. Yeah, we're brewed at seven thousand one hundred ninety-eight feet. Bert, your portfolio. <laughs> It's very extensive. How many different types of beer, including seasonals, are you brewing at any one point in time? Probably about 15-ish. Okay. All right. How many lines? Do you have 15 brew lines, or how many? Um, uh, this brew house is starts up Monday morning, and we're capable of running through Saturday morning, so we can brew upwards of about 30 brews a week. Wow. And we run 24-5 mm-hmm. uh, during the busy season, and we'll fill, we have everywhere from single brew tanks back there for beers like uh, the Seagull Smash specialty over there, all the way up through five brew tanks that take 20 hours to fill, and those are usually full of 7K and Happy Camper. Nice. And that, that's how we maintain such a so, wide variety. So 7K is now your number one? It is, by a smidge. So Happy Camper's been our flagship. Oh, yeah, for years. For years, and 7K actually passed it in volume contribution during March. So it's on a monthly basis. We're selling more 7K right now than we are Happy Camper. What about seasonals? Any new seasonals coming along? The Twisted Root, we've got... We've got that in Jefferson City right now. It's yep. delicious. And the, the the Adobe Igloo, I tell you, I, I fell in love with that beer because it's got just a little tinge of heat. Yep. And then that cocoa. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's 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 a winter ale, but it's not. Most winter ales are just really sticky and sweet, you know. And this one's just, oh, man, you you. You hit that one out of the park. Anyway, what new seasonals have you got coming? Um, I'm glad you like that beer. Uh, I love that that's, beer. That's, that's exactly what we were going for. Um, you know, the, com- the the comments that we get in New Mexico often t- oftentimes are not enough chili. Um, we eat food that's loaded with chili. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if that were a New Mexico-only beer, we probably would have jacked the chili way up and made it more intense. Right. But we, we're in eight states, and we have to be cognizant of the fact that not everyone eats hot food and actually I'm not even a fan of hot beer like eat hot food and drink cold beer with it it makes way more sense to me so right. I still think we got the chili pretty good I, I think you just I do I think you hit that one out of the ballpark that is really good what's the next new seasonal so currently as you already said is uh, is Twisted Root it's ginger and lemongrass yep. ale uh, very low hot character it's supposed to be spicy bright refreshing zingy it is uh, and then the next one is called Sunsetter and it's a farmhouse ale with agave and lime. So kind of sticking with um, some some regional uh, yeah. regional ingredients and trying to capture that, in this case, uh, margarita-inspired 
summer, yeah. winter. When's that going to be released? Early June. What do you see as the biggest challenges right now in the craft, independent craft brewer industry? Being relevant. And I mean that from a number of different standpoints. So it's you need to be relevant with the consumer. You need to be relevant with your distributor partner. You need to be relevant with your retailers. And you need to be relevant with potential employees and your existing. So it's kind of across the board because there's so much competition out there right now. So, you know, I think Bert said, you know, brew it and they will come. Or maybe you said that those days are long gone. So now it's, yeah, it has to go beyond just making good beer. Now it's how strong is your brand? How compelling are the new beers that you're putting out? Um, can you find any competitive advantages with how you utilize your sales team and how do you apply those resources? What are we doing in chain? So I think being relevant right now with as just flooded with competition as the market is right now, that to me is the biggest challenge. How do we add more value to those people, to those you know different groups? more value than the other suppliers that are coming and banging on those same doors. We're constantly pushing ourselves. It's just you really have to step up your game right now to be able to stay relevant and differentiate yourself. On the production side, what do you see as challenges in the industry? I mean, I, I agree it's relevance, um, but but how do you uh, how do you spark that interest in your, in your drinker, in your distributor partner, in your retailers? Um, how, how do you catch that interest? And there's a, a very dogmatic approach to brewing that a lot of people take. Um, a lot of brewers and breweries get caught up in the idea of like, well, I need to win medals in order to be able to promote my beer as high quality. But in order to play that game, you have to brew beer to a very specific style. Basically, you're just reading a description from the GABF style guidelines and saying, well, this is what this beer tastes like. Well, I need to make that beer perfectly. But you make that choice. And I think we've also made the choice to say, I don't care about that. Um, We're going to make beer that uh, it maybe doesn't fit into a specific style, but we think that we're getting ahead of the curve and trying to delve into what drinkers really want. And it means we're going to take some risks. It means we're going to make some beers like like Twisted Root that, that may or may not hit. Like, I don't know. I think the other difference is when we try something new, we don't just, we don't just throw darts. Um, we trial and trial and trial that beer. We make it as many times as we have to. I think we're on brew number seven of Sunsetter right now on the R&D scale to make sure that when it comes out, it's ready to go. If you're going to go outside the boundaries and you're going to take risks, you better do your homework first. So, you know, um, God deliver. I mean... You gotta be good, you gotta know what you're doing, you gotta deliver, and you gotta think like your drinker, and you have to, you can't get like too caught up in all the BS that our industry has. Uh, you gotta be your drinker and figure out what they want. Well, if you'll get me a little a 7K IPA. <laughs> I think that tap has kicked, I'm gonna grab you a can. Wait a minute, right okay, can. if you got a cold can, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, this is the 7K IPA right here. Um, this is more like what an IPA should be. Is that how would you describe this? Yeah, I would say that that's what an IPA should be. Um, you know, the type of beer that the British Empire used to put on the boats. To no, take, no, 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 not that at all. Who cares? No one cares no, about no, that. No, at no, all. no, no, no. no, no. <laughs> that's ancient history. Um, <laughs> what What do people want in IPA? Why is IPA the new word for beer? Um, what is IPA? Seventy percent of the market. It's going to be seventy percent of what we make this year. Um, people want that's big, what they want. They want big hop aroma. They want a soft, smooth mid palate, and they want a fast, clean finish. All right. Um, and so, 
I mean, you tell me if we did it or not. <laughs> that's that's very tasty. It does. It doesn't taste like a pine cone exploded in my back of my mouth. Yeah, we fight that pine daily. Yeah. That's this is good. This is a really good beer, and I like your happy camper, but I I think this is better. <laughs> well, different. Okay, uh, different. Different. Yeah, so sorry. Different. <laughs> better. Not as resiny. Not as exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, that is resin is the defining character right. of camper, and tropical fruit is the defining character of seven camp. Okay. Yeah. Well, Bert, Jarrett, now we move on to the lightning round. <laughs> Ooh, oh, sweet. Five lightning. questions. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. So, since I'm from Jefferson City, and the Santa Fe Trail starts about 40 miles from my doorstep. Lightning round would be famous roads. So here we go. Don't. don't. Route 66. Turquoise Trail. Okay. Turquoise Trail. Okay. Camino Real or Route Royale? Camino Real. <laughs> highway to hell or highway to heaven? Highway to hell. Highway to hell. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Route 66 <laughs> or Sunset going. Boulevard? Ooh. Route 66 uh, for sure. Sunset Boulevard. Oh, you're, you're very flashy. Chisholm Trail? <laughs> I've had a really good time on Sunset Boulevard. We all have. A number of times. <laughs> I still resonate. Yeah, so being a 66 still resonates more with me. Chisholm Trail or Goodnight Loving Trail? Ooh, Goodnight Loving Trail. <laughs> Just because of the name. Yeah. yeah. Chisholm and Trail it, and it come, great connotation. And last but not least, Oregon Trail or Santa Fe Trail? Santa Fe Trail. Of course, Santa Fe. Guys, thanks a lot. Jared, Alan. Bert, man, this has been fun. Thanks so Absolutely. much. You bet. Um, thanks again, guys. You bet. Cheers. 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 Health. Now, as you could tell from that interview, we were in the old tap room in the brewery, which is, I mean, literally, it's surrounded by the brewery. There's these glass walls. There's doors opening. People are coming and going. We it, we were right in the heart of the brewery doing that interview. There's a lot of background noise, but if you've ever been to a craft brewery, you know there's a lot of noise going on. But again, thanks to Bert and Jarrett. My gosh, we had a great time and uh, great conversation. I had to cut a bunch of stuff out. It would have just run entirely too long. But we are working on a plan to allow you guys to get access to our uncut interviews and bloopers and whatnot and additional content. So just keep listening to the podcast and someday we'll let you know how. Santa Fe Brewing Company's Brewery Campus is located on the southwestern edge of Santa Fe, just inside the city limits at 35 Fireplace Street. And not only do they have the tap room in the brewery, but they have a new facility right there on the grounds. It's called The Bridge. It reminds you of an old West Cantina. Really neat. They got a big outdoor uh, patio plaza kind of area. And then it's a lot of open air and a lot of light. And it's really cool. So if you get a chance to get out to Santa Fe, that hit it up. That's their main tap room. They're open Monday, Tuesday, and Saturday, 11 to 10 o'clock. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 11 to 10.30. And Sundays, noon to 8.00. They have three other tap rooms as well. The break room at 510 Galisteo in Santa Fe. The El Dorado Tap House at 7 Caliente Road in Santa Fe. And the Albuquerque Tap Room at 3600 Cutler Northeast in Albuquerque. 
To find out what's on tap, opening hours for all their tap rooms, check them out over on their website, santafebrewing.com. Hey, What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? Hey, Tony, how are you doing? Doing well, how are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, just uh, getting uh, these first few shows out of the way. Where are you? Uh, how was Columbus? Columbus was excellent. A little bit hot, but uh, tried some really, really interesting beer there. What were some of the favorite places you went while you were there? Uh, one, of the, one of my favorite beers I tried, I tried a bunch from Seventh Sun. Um, that's microbrew there. Uh, and it's, it's, they had a blonde that was really refreshing. Uh, also had a, a pale ale from them that was great. Um, tried Rock Mill Tavern, which is a, a cool, a, a cool uh, brew pub kind of outside of town. There, uh, tried a barrel aged stout, and they uh, and they have a really, really refreshing pilsner too. Tell me about that barrel aged stout. Oh man, it was good. I, uh, it was just it, it was dark. It was it, you know you, in the summertime you're supposed to kick to drinking the stouts, but for some reason it just it just appealed to me, and it was kind of oak aged, and it was just real smoky, real, real, not too viscous, but but just you know. Just really, really filling. I, I, I drank a big bottle of it, popped the cork on it, and uh, it was it was just it was delicious. I've been drinking a lot of Sequench from Dogfish Head. I've uh, mm. I can't I can't keep it in the fridge right now. <laughs> so, nice. Yeah. No, when you're working or when you just yeah, just, just, just no, not when I'm working. I but afterwards and uh, well, while I'm doing editing and stuff, I don't have to be completely on my game. I might drink. <laughs> I might I might have one while I'm doing some narration, but anyway. Yeah. So, what have you got for us this week? Well, you know, we we talk about the explosion of the of the craft beer scene and the, and the craft beer revolution, but you know, it, people say it, but the, you don't really know the numbers behind it. So, I try to look into that a little bit to kind of see what what's out there. And thanks to Derek, who writes for the Atlantic, he recently published a story that kind of laid out exactly what's happening by the numbers, the economic impact of craft beer, and some of the reasons behind it, which are I found pretty interesting. Well, what's his basic premise? Well, the basic premise is uh, we're talking about how all of the business and all this, all this industry uh, in the United States is moving towards consolidation and streamlining. Um, and for some reason, craft beer kind of is the outlier uh, to an extent. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of consolidation going on with, with the big boys buying up some of the, uh, the micro beer. But, um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of where the little guy has a, a fighting chance, and, and there's interesting reasons for it. Like he says in the story, basically, uh, as recently as 2012, just you know, six years ago, uh, the two big boys, AB InBev and Miller Coors, controlled nearly 90% of U.S. beer production. And as you've talked about before, you know that includes kind of the acquired micro brands like Elysian and Terrapin and Line and Kugels and Blue Moon. Uh, and you know that's that's the way that the free market works in the U.S. Consolidation along with technology and globalization, they're supposed to streamline production and making everything more efficient and hopefully making it cheaper. That's 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 the idea. But it also unfortunately means a reduction in the workforce. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, between 2002 and 2007, brewery employment dropped, even though the overall economy was booming. Then came the craft beer revolution. And it's, it's fascinating. It was like basically like an overnight reversal. From 2008 to 2016, the number of breweries increased sixfold, and the number of employees jumped 120%. Um, you know, just halfway through last year, the count was nearly 70,000 brewery employees. That's almost three times the workforce of, of a decade before. And it's no coincidence in that time that beer prices have spiked by 50%. So it's, 
it kind of has that economic impact. Um, but what's really interesting about it, then there's a wrinkle to that, is that all of this is happening while overall consumption of beer has been declining. Uh, during that same time period, uh, 2008 to 2016, the shipments from five majors, Diageo, which owns Guinness, uh, AB, Miller Coors, Heineken, and Pabst, dropped 14%. So you look at that and you're like, well, what's, what's the overall cause of all this? Um, and Thompson, in his article, points to two possibilities. The first is very obvious. It's that uh, if you do the math, we're paying more for less beer. So ostensibly, that means we're choosing quality over quantity. Um, you know, picking up a 10-pack of, uh, of Logboat over the, uh, the 11.99, 12-pack of Natty. Right. And that's because craft beers offer better and more diverse taste, not just the pale lagers, but we have like IPAs, Saisons, Sours, what we're talking about, and Stouts, of course. And even if you're just looking for a buzz, you know, uh, a couple of 13% ABV Prairie Bomb Imperial Stouts can get you there just as fast as a six or a Paps. Sure. But what's really interesting is that he points out the second thing is a little bit more complicated. And it has to do with kind of government oversight. Um, and the first thing was the seed planted way back in 1978 when uh, the government allowed home brewing, which kind of created a generation of, of beer drinkers that have a little bit more, you know, their taste buds are a little more attuned to, to beers other than Schlitz. And, uh, and, and then more recently, uh, and this is happening all over, it just recently happened in Georgia, uh, where I used to live in Atlanta, that these, these state governments are kind of enabling, they're giving small breweries a chance to skip the distributor, that three-tier distribution system, you know, from brewery to distributor to, 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 to vendor. And they're allowing to kind of sell their suds directly to the consumer through the tap room and through the tasting rooms and stuff. And so the consequence of that is, is that by the time they go to market, by the time they decide they're ready to can or bottle their beer, hit the market they already have a built-in fan base so they're not they're not just competing cold with with budweiser and and all the big boys they they actually have a, have a little bit of a, a groundswell so right. it's, it's pretty fascinating yeah i was talking to um in the interview this episode i was talking to jared uh, babinsack and bert boyce there with santa fe but we got a discussion about uh has it plateaued yet and mm-hmm. overall, it's slowed down, but there are some breweries that are out there that are still, they're still exploding. They're still going up. I mean, and uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of an, it's a very interesting time in the, uh, the craft beer world. And it's a great time to be, uh, to be a consumer. Um, oh, yeah. I would say that. I mean, I, and like you said, you know, these, uh, these big boys, they are buying up uh, these, uh, these craft breweries. Uh, here and there, but uh, whether the quality remains, that's always the question. Some of them it does, some of them it doesn't. Anyway, but right. so anyway, yeah, you can't even tell the difference. Yeah, yeah, you can't. And with some of them, um, well, hey, that's great. Um, what are you looking at for next time? Next time, I'm talking a little bit about millennials. If you stay around any bar long enough, you'll hear some people <laughs> grumble about the millennials. But, but it's an interesting, interesting, uh, interesting story about millennials and the trend as it coincides with craft beer. It's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. Okay. Well, I'll look forward to it. So, Thanks much, Alan. Yep. Uh, freelance journalist Tony Rehagen, old friend of mine from the big metropolis of Santa Elizabeth, Missouri. Uh, <laughs> anyway, hey, Tony, we'll talk to you next time. Take care, man. All right. See you. Bye-bye. Devil's inside her. The devil's inside her. 
been listening to The Bruise Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our blog on website, thebruisetraveler.com. Cheers. Cheers to all of you out there. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode, guys. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Bruise Traveler Podcast and on Twitter at The Bruise Trav LR. You can find all the social media links over on our website as well as feeds for the podcast. It's thebruisetraveler.com. On behalf of everyone here at Team Bruce Traveler, thanks for listening, and please tell your friends about us. And if you really want to show us some love, give us a great five-star review over on iTunes. It would be greatly appreciated. The soundtrack for The Bruce Traveler, and it is awesome, is from our friends at Gaelic Storm. Pat, Steve, Pete, Ryan, and Katie, great people, and a big thanks to them for supporting the podcast. Their new album, Go Find a Tree, is available at their website, GaelicStorm.com. Also, while you're there, check out their tour schedule and see if they are coming to a venue near you. You can also find their music on iTunes and probably any place else where you get your music. Hey, we're going to be on the road next week. Myself and the Bruise Traveler team videographer, Tom Baker, we're going to be up in Duluth, Minnesota this weekend at Canal Park Brewing on Saturday night, June 23rd, and at Bent Paddle Brewing on Sunday afternoon, June 24th. Then we'll be up in Grand Marais on the north shore of Lake Superior through the week checking out the Voyager Brewing Company, and the Gunflint Tavern. We might also try to go catch a few smallmouth, maybe a lake trout or two while we're up there. So until next time, remember, drink locally, think globally. Take care of each other and take care of the earth. It's everything we've got. So I'm on down the road, and if I don't run into you at your favorite tap room, I'll see you right here on the podcast. And merrily, as always, you are the measure of my dreams. I love you, honey. So, so long. I'll see you next time. Green eyes, red hair, long legs. Devil inside her. Green eyes, red hair, long legs. Devil inside her. She's a cup of tea. She's a Jaeger bomb. She's an angel. She's an Amazon. She's a poem. She's an alphabet, she's a violin with a bayonet She's a revolution, she's a piece of cord She's a grain of sand, the cliffs of morn She's Friday night, she's Sunday morning She's a fair wind, she's a sailor's warning Green eyes, red hair, long legs Devil inside her Green eyes, red hair, long legs She's got the devil inside her She's an ivory tower, she's a tin roof, she's a summer shower, she's a carnival, she's a masquerade, she's a piggy fence, she's lemonade. Green eyes, red hair, long legs, devil inside her. Green eyes, red hair, long legs, devil inside her. Green eyes, red hair, long legs, devil inside her.
shit, but she's the farmer's daughter. She's a cocktail dress, a cowboy boot. She's a rescue mark, she's absolute. Green eyes, red hair, long legs. Devil inside her. been absolutely terrified every moment of my life and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing that I wanted to do. Georgia O'Keefe, born November 15, 1887, Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, died March 6, 1986, Santa Fe, New Mexico.